Amen. Well, Hope's at the front. Children, you get to go to junior worship this morning. So kiddos, come on to the front. And as they're coming forward, I'll introduce myself. For those that don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here. My name is David Cottle. And uh, it's a joy to be able to preach on this day on the family of God when we did our family dedication. And uh, we are a church that God has blessed us with a lot of new life, and we are the better for it. This morning, we are continuing our series in Mark. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 3, and we'll pick up where Rob left off. But before we do, I brought a couple of, of things with me this morning. Since the topic was family, I was thinking to myself this week, you know, what, what defines family in our culture? Uh, when we start, just like we did this morning, we had the, the family dedication, and I brought with me, not the original because it was kind of in tatters taped together, but a copy of my original birth certificate. And for those of us in many countries, this identifies who is the father and mother of the child that was born, right? And so in my case, it says, David Bryant Cottle, born March 30th, 1983. I gave away my age. Born in San Antonio, Texas, to Charles Edwin Cottle II and Patricia K. Hoskins, right? We, we identify the maiden name of the mother. It has on here their occupations, the address of where I was living at the time, and the doctor who delivered me. And so, you know, in our culture, a birth certificate helps us identify, okay, who, who is my family? Where did I come from? Where did I start? The other thing I brought with me is the next step for many of us in forming a family, our marriage license, right? This is the original. I'm, I'm going to guard it very carefully, make sure I don't lose it. But issued by the county of Oklahoma County, David Bryant Cottle and Anna Elise Nason were married May 30th, 2009. You know, these documents are important to Anna and I, they're important to our family, but they may not be as important to you. But if you asked me what defines David as the son of Charles and Patricia, or what defines the husband and wife relationship of David and Anna, the, the piece of paper is a nice token, but that's not what originated the relationship. And a lot of times in our culture, we confuse things that God has blessed us with in terms of the family relationship with the design of what it was originally intended to be. And so this morning, we are looking at the family of the king. And so we define earthly family using terms like a birth certificate, a marriage license. But how does God define his family? And what constitutes the family of God? Is it being made part of the family of God through saying a specific prayer? Is it being confirmed by a priest of a certain denomination or religion? Is it baptism? If I wasn't baptized as an infant, am I really part of the family of God? If I was baptized as an infant, does that give me some special status with God? And are those the things that seal our eternity? Well, today we're going to find... Hopefully, the answer with what we look at. If you have your Bibles open, 
Verse 21, Rob preached this briefly last week, but the connection with our passage today picks up where we left off there in verse 21, where we see Jesus' friends and family, they think he's out of his mind, right? Mark tells us when his family heard of it, they went to seize Jesus. They thought he had lost it, right? And Mark's gospel will have several of these types of stories where he introduces an idea, but then he breaks up the action with something to kind of illustrate a deeper point of what he's then going to explain again. And in today's passage, it's really just a continuation of what Rob was preaching last week. We can't read the Pharisees and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem challenging Jesus and saying he was doing works by Satan apart from the context of now Jesus' own family is coming to him and thinking he's out of his mind. And this could be Mark's way of writing his gospel narrative in a way that shows there's not even unbelief and skepticism among the religious elites, the people that should have recognized God in the flesh in the first place. But Jesus faces a similar skepticism and to an extent unbelief in his own family. And so we pick up in verse 31, this scene of Jesus' family coming to take him. Let's stand together. We're going to read our passage for this morning. Mark 3, 31 through 35. Mark writes, he says, and his, being Jesus's mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him and a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of God He is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Father, we are in a season in our culture where these next two holidays get hyper-focused on the inward relationship of our families. And God, this morning, may we not lose perspective that there is a greater family and a greater relationship than anything that we can experience here on earth. And that is our relationship to you as God the Father, through your Son, made possible by the Holy Spirit. Father, as we look at your word this morning, would you speak clearly to our hearts and our minds? God, help us be challenged by your word of what Jesus is speaking Help us have understanding so that we can know how to apply it to our lives. And God, may Christ be honored and glorified through everything that I preach this morning. And may not a word go against what your word counsels us as the way to find eternal life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So Alan and I were talking about this this passage. He's a good sounding board when you're trying to get a sermon together and keep you on track. But... In our conversation, I like the way that Alan put it. Jesus' family has no clue what happened at the baptism. Right? If you think about it, Jesus' brothers, his sisters, and his mother were not sure of what happened to his earthly father, Joseph. But he's not mentioned in the Gospels. But regardless, Jesus lived roughly 30 years with an earthly family. 
And he interacted with them much the same that you and I interact with one another. We don't have an account of what Jesus' childhood looked like. We don't need to make assumptions. The focus of the Gospels is upon Jesus' ministry commenced through the baptism. And if you think from his family's perspective, they look at the baptism and they think, time out. What are you doing, Jesus? What, what do you mean you're now on this new mission? The kingdom of God, all this talk about repent and belief. I mean, John the Baptist had his own thing going, but, you know, hey, you're part of us. And you can sympathize with them to an extent if you understand the culture and their perspective where they're coming from. From a Middle Eastern mindset and a family dynamic, a shame and honor culture, you do not want anything shameful brought upon your own family, anything dishonoring to your family's name. And so with good motivations, maybe his family is coming to him in this passage that Mark gives us. And at the surface, maybe their motivations are pure of heart. They're trying to save Jesus from himself, save him for his own good, help him save face so that he's not dishonored. But they could have the wrong motivations. When we look at a passage like John 7, 5, in John's gospel, he records that there was unbelief even among Jesus' own brothers. Not just skepticism, but John says they did not believe. And as Rob reminded us last week, we know that many of Jesus' earthly family came to faith after the resurrection. The Holy Spirit convicted them of their sin. They realized he was the Messiah, and they submitted to Jesus' rule and authority. But again, skepticism, unbelief is what is going to begin to mark the gospel as we continue to move forward. And we see the theme of the crowds which are not always a good thing in the Gospels. They gather quickly, but once Jesus begins to issue his challenges or difficult things come along of being associated with Jesus, they begin to scatter. And Mark's larger narrative here with us as we get ready to launch into a significant portion next year where we pick up in Mark 4 about parables and mysterious teachings of Jesus. How do we understand those? Mark is helping illustrate a scene through his narrative. And he's showing us that those who thought they were on the inside with God are actually left on the outside. Those who thought they were on the outside with God, well, they're now treated as the in crowd. And there's both a strong encouragement and a warning for us today as of what we're going to look at in these scriptures. You see, we are either inside the family of God or we are outside. And the one relationship that matters in in this life, is whether or not you can count yourself as part of God's family. So on the heels of, of Jesus calling his disciples, we saw that through chapters 1 through 3. They leave behind their occupations. They're leaving behind their own family to follow Jesus and counting the cost. But then last week, we saw the insertion of the scribes, the religious leaders, and they've severed themselves from Jesus. They have accused him of being aligned with Satan they're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And now his own family wanting to reel him in. Jesus is pointing us back to who makes up the family of the king. Let's look at verses 31 through 33. So Jesus' mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? You saw it earlier. I'm only 
two-thirds the height of Rob. I'm a shorter man, so you only get two-thirds the number of points he normally preaches. There's only two points today's sermon. But don't get your hopes up. It probably doesn't mean we're going to wrap up any quicker. Point number one, the king's true family is not what we thought. This is what these first two verses are pointing us to. The king's true family is not what we thought. You see, Jesus' question would be shocking. We talked about the Middle Eastern family dynamic, right? Culturally, it, he was making a statement that people would be thinking to themselves, what on earth do you mean, and why would you ever say that about your own family, Jesus? But take the culture perspective out of it. Think of it from a scriptural perspective. To the casual Jewish observer, what's the fifth commandment that God gave? Honor your father and your mother. I mean, at a minimum, Jesus, the Son of God, appears to not only be removing himself from his earthly family, but at worst, dishonoring his mother, not welcoming her in. But this is not only part of Mark's ability to narrate the story so that we see this this bigger picture in what he's describing, but it shows us that those who are outside of the family of God are not who we thought. Verse 32, it mentions the crowd, and we we talked about these crowds. They gather quickly, but then we're going to see later on they begin to waver, right? They they liked the miracle-working Jesus. They liked the famous Jesus. He heals, right? He casts out demons. Uh, He's shutting down the religious elite. If you're an outsider and you see this Jesus interacting in in your area, your sphere of influence, you want a piece of the action, right? You're interested to see what's going on. And the crowd in the house, you can picture, he's, maybe he's in Simon Peter's house where he had healed his mother-in-law. And this kind of serves as a base of operations. Regardless, you can imagine that those that are probably sitting directly in front of Jesus when he's going to give his response are most likely his disciples, right? They were told uh, two weeks ago when we looked at the passage, Jesus appointed the 12 so that they would be with him. And so Jesus is looking at this crowd that, wants to believe in him and is giving up a lot to follow and he's comparing him to his own family. But the crowd, being mostly Jewish, as they begin to hear this description, Jesus is beginning to reset their motivation for following and their understanding of who they are before God. Turn with me to John's gospel, John chapter 8. And look at a similar account that we're told here. Jesus is is once again seen uh, addressing, we can assume it's a crowd. We're told in verse 31 that he is addressing Jews who had believed in him. But as this dialogue between Jesus and these believing Jews progresses, he's beginning to draw out that their belief may not be what they thought it was supposed to be. Verses 31 through 38, he addresses them using familiar terms. He talks to them about being descendants of their father Abraham, and they they themselves recognize that they're Abraham's offspring, but then he begins to transition into saying that they don't understand that their father is someone more than Abraham, that it's not just their descendant that he points to. And he brings a very strong accusation that they are not truly free. 
And in verse 33, they reply and they say, how can it be that we're not free? We're descendants of Abraham. We, we have all the covenant and the promises given to us by God. But Jesus progresses and he continues to talk. And with all of their pushback, he reminds them that if they were actually of their true father, they would receive the words that Jesus was speaking to them. And then picking up in verse 9, let's look at verses 39 through 47. They answered Jesus and they said, Abraham is our father. But Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. But Jesus said to them, if God was your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. And the reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. It's a strong accusation that Jesus makes. And it's one that this crowd of believing Jews has a difficult time understanding why he is saying, Abraham is not what matters. You believing in me and receiving the words that I've received from the heavenly father is the mark of whether or not you are part of the family of God. So the only thing that can make us part of the family of God is by believing in Jesus and submitting to his authority. And so Jesus' earthly ministry was not only to bring salvation to Jews, but it was to save non-Jews. The Bible in the New Testament and the Old refers to these as Gentiles, those who were not of Jewish descendants. For many of us, that's you and me. We have no place at the table when it comes to birthright. But don't mistake Jesus' comments this morning to be demeaning earthly family. The scriptures are clear that the family is extremely important to the Lord. Uh, There will be pictures of the gospel's work compared to a husband and wife relationship. Discipling terms used in the New Testament often refer to being siblings of one another, brothers and sisters, of having spiritual fathers or spiritual mothers who nurture us in the faith. But go back even beyond that, Genesis chapter 1. The original blessing of command that God gave to the first two people he created, Adam and Eve, were what? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God's design has always been to use families to point us back to himself. And the scriptures continually emphasize that salvation will be culminated through families. You see, even Jesus' own bloodline was not purely Jewish. His own descendants would be, in some cases, very far outside of what the Jews pictured their Messiah coming through a certain line of descent from his relatives. 
Think with me about the story of Ruth. We won't have time to go through the whole thing. I'd encourage you to read it. It's only four chapters, but it's a beautiful story of redemption through faith. You see, Ruth is a Moabite by birth. And if we go back into the Exodus time, the Moabites were people who were God's enemies. They were opposed to God's people coming into the promised land that he had given them. They refused to offer aid. And so God cursed them. But Ruth, a Moabite, during a period of famine, marries into a Jewish family, only to be widowed when her husband dies. Her mother-in-law, Naomi, who is Jewish by birth, is also widowed. And the two of them find themselves in this broken situation. And Naomi approaches Ruth and says, Ruth, I'm going back to my people in Israel. It would be better for you to stay with your pagan, unbelieving family rather than come back with me. Stay here, continue in your idol worship. But Ruth has experienced something about God and she refuses to. She doesn't take her mother-in-law's advice. Instead, she says, your people will be my people, but more importantly, your God will be my God. And through that act of faith, Ruth is brought into Israel with Naomi and she meets a man, Boaz. Boaz is the son of Salmon and Rahab. And this is the Rahab that we see in the story of Jericho, a prostitute, someone that was within the city walls. And when the Israelites had to go through Jericho in order to reach the promised land, the spies that went into the city to try and figure out how God would accomplish this victory, when they thought their life was on the line, Rahab brings them in, risking her own to protect them. And she yields not to the power of Israel as a people, but to the revealed power of God that she has seen displayed through God's people. And so Rahab joins herself to Israel, and we see at least one other reference after the story of Jericho making mention of her. But more importantly, we know in the Gospels she is counted as one who demonstrated faith. You can see her name in Hebrews 11 in the Great Hall of Faith. And so Salmon and Rahab get married, and they give birth to Boaz. So we have one of mixed, mixed birth, Boaz, another one who is far outside of God as a Moabite and Ruth, and God in providence brings them together, and they have a son. His name is Obed. Obed gives birth to Jesse, and Jesse would be the father of David, King David, who is not only the one through whom the Messiah's line would descend, but is himself a picture of what Jesus's kingship and authority would look like. I mean, you couldn't write a better story when you see the Old Testament unrolling itself, literally through scrolls, right? Unrolling itself before our eyes as we see God bringing about his salvation through broken and lost people. So the question for us is, if it's not through birthright, then who are counted as the children of God? Let's go back to Mark chapter 3. Verse 34 through 35. And Jesus, looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother, my sister, and my mother. This is our second point this morning. The king's true family knows and does the will of God. When you kind of plant yourself 
in the scriptures, the best thing that I've learned to really study them and gain understanding of what it's saying is just to ask questions, right? And so some of the questions that I was wrestling with this week as I was studying this passage is, what is the will of God? What does it mean to do the will of God? If we take it at the surface, um, I often speak of the will of God in terms of making decisions, right? What's the will of God for me in, in this case? Do I do this or do I not do this? Is that what Jesus means? If it was simply choosing to do certain things and avoiding to do others, as I was wrestling through that, I thought, that sounds dangerously close to the idea that I can save myself simply by choosing to do a certain thing and choosing not to do things that dishonor God. But I don't think that that's what Jesus means in this passage. Uh, I think he's driving at something more profound. So what could it be? I think the will of God, doing the will of God, is two things. It's faith and it's obedience. So doing the will of God requires faith, belief that Jesus is the Son of God. Look at with me at John chapter 6. John does a good job of helping us see some of the things that the narration that Mark has for us doesn't include, but they're all working together to point us to who the true Jesus is. But in Mark chapter 6, beginning near verse 25, Jesus goes to the other side of the sea, and these people, another crowd gathers to him, right? And Jesus warns them that they've gathered to him, in this case, not because of what they are should be seeking, but because of what they're wrongly seeking. He compares it to they saw the signs, they ate their fill of the loaves, this comes on the heels of feeding the 5,000, and he warns them, don't do the work for the food that perishes in verse 27, but work for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. And they said to him, well, what must we do to be doing what? To be doing the works of God. And Jesus gives a very simple response in verse 29. He says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? They, they still don't get it. They've, they've missed the sight. And he goes down in verse 35. And using the illustration of what they just received, being fed with this bread, he, Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whomever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on that last day. The people are, are wanting to do a work, right? Jesus, just tell us what we need to do. We'll do it. We want that eternal life, the thing that we can control. But Jesus pushes back in verse 40, and he clearly says, this is the will of God, that we believe in the Son of God. 
So these verses, there's a lot in there of what Jesus is saying, but it's, it's saturated with belief and action. Both originate with God, but they require us to respond to God. You see, God has sent the Son, so whoever believes in him will be saved. And the Son, Jesus, tells us that he will never cast out those whom God has saved. But then we're also told that to do the will of God is to believe in the Son, and that whoever believes in the Son will be saved and never lose their salvation. And this is the call and response of the gospel. God originates the call, and we respond. God grants that we can have faith. He draws us to himself, and we act through faith, belief on the Son, and we walk in obedience to Christ. So if you're here this morning, and this connects with what we preached last week, there is a longing in your heart to be saved from your sin. That is the work of the Holy Spirit convicting you and I of those things that we have offended God with, our sin that has separated us from a relationship with him. And as Rob warned us last week, the blaspheme of the Holy Spirit is the heart that has been hardened against the Lord because of our sin. The more that we restrain or resist that leading of the Holy Spirit to receive forgiveness and believe upon the Son, we only grow more and more hardened in heart like Pharaoh to where eventually we have the perspective that we have lost our salvation. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The unforgivable sin is to resist salvation and not believe in the Son. And so if you're here today, do not harden yourself against the Lord. Believe upon Christ. And these promises that Jesus gives himself, you will be saved. But faith is not left on its own. You see, faith is demonstrated through obedience to Christ. Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, clearly tells us to repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so true conversion is demonstrated through our obedience. We obey God's word and we submit to Christ as Lord. And so God's family is recognized as people who profess faith, believe upon Christ, but then have something to show for it. And that's what Jesus is getting at. To do the will of the Father counts you as in relationship with him, in the family of God. But we can't confuse these two ideas. It's always faith first. Obedience comes as the flow to faith. One commentator said it this way. Obedience does not originate a relationship with God. Faith does that. But obedience is a sign of faith. I found this uh, illustration, and Hope helped me put it together on a graphic. I think we have it. But it helps us see faith is the root of obedience, and obedience is the blossom of faith. It's a quote from an old Scottish pastor, Alexander McLaren. And if you look at this picture and how we see naturally in the world around us that God has designed and created, a picture of how faith results in obedience If we love God and we're rooted in him by faith, then what blossoms in our life is the fruit of good works that honor and glorify God. Go back to contrasting the picture of outsiders and insiders. Without faith, we have no root in Christ, right? This birthright idea is not where the gospel picks up. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Our condition is that we start condemned 
by our sin against God. We always see this, the sign guy at NFL games, right? John three sixteen. But we can't forget 17 through 21. For God so loved the world, and he did, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in Christ is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So our, our status, our birthright is condemnation and death. Because of our sin and unbelief, we, we stand condemned. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world for sin. He came to save sinners from their sin. And Jesus draws him to himself by the Holy Spirit's work. And we respond by putting faith in Jesus. And we are born again and adopted into the family of God. John 1, 9 through 13. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We're born again, but then Romans 8, 14 through 17 tells us too, that not only... Are we born again, but we're adopted as heirs and we're filled with the spirit of the living God. Romans 8, 14 through 17. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. So Jesus is telling us that our obedience to God characterizes our relationship to him. So love for Christ is demonstrated by doing what he commanded. That's John 14, verses 15 and 21. If you love me, You'll obey my commandments. But the opposite is also true. John, in a letter to the church, 1 John 2, 4 through 6, and then he emphasizes it again in chapter 3, verse 24 of the same letter, says that claiming to know God and claiming to love God, but not keeping his commands, actually proves that we are liars. So how does it relate to us today? I think there's four ways we should consider applying this scripture. First is a simple question. Are you in the family of God? And don't use a test that some person has made up for you. Don't take the word that a priest said, if you'll say these words and if you'll believe this statement of faith, that that will save you. Don't put your faith in that 
being baptized as a sign of faith is what saves, there is one thing that saves, and that is faith expressed through belief that Jesus is the Son of God and that he is the only way, the only truth, and the only life for us to gain salvation. And the Father has initiated through the Son this glorious relationship for us, right? And this relationship, it's stronger. It's more loving. It's more comforting than anything you could attach yourself to in this life. And that's the encouragement for us, that being part of the family of God is worth the cost. Second, if you're in the family of God, which I would assume many of us this morning are, how does this change how we view the church? The church is the family of God. We are his people. We protect, we encourage, and we preserve obedience to God's word and submission to Christ as Lord. We keep each other from shipwrecking the faith. But when we look at the church, do you see a family? You think about the call of Jesus' disciples. Think about Simon Peter, who we know not only was married, but had a mother-in-law and many extended family that are recorded in the gospel accounts for us. If it's worth it for him to leave friends and family behind to follow Jesus, then can we not count the same cost and find Jesus worthy? And I think the other thing that we encourage ourselves with is look at how many things in this world we love to divide ourselves by, right? Uh, We're getting ready for the political season and all these races. We divide ourselves along ideological lines, right? Uh, We divide ourselves based on who's popular and who's unpopular, who's cool, who's uncool. Uh, Who's a sooner, who's a cowboy, right? We we divide based upon abilities and, and things that we find value in. This person is less valuable because they can't do A, B, and C. We divide based upon wealth or poverty. We divide based upon race and ethnicity. But we belong to one another as God's family. And so regardless of our background, the unity that the church has reflects the unity that God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit have with one another. That although we are distinct, there is a unison that is harmony in our relationships with one another. And so the church, it's not an institution. Regardless of how we may frame it, and regardless of how the news media may portray us, we are not a denomination. We are the family of God brought together by what Christ has done. We're going to look more at this idea next week. But just for starters, as you read through the New Testament, and hopefully through your devotional time that you have throughout the week, just mark how many times in letters from Paul and the other apostles and early disciples address one another as brother and sister address their relationships in terms of discipling one another as father and mother? Do you view the church as the family of God? Do you love your fellow church members as if they were blood relatives, if not better than your blood relatives? Third, our obedience is an overflow of our view of who Christ is and his value. So when we treasure Christ above all else, we will obey him no matter what the cost, right? High value is going to equate to high obedience in God's kingdom. And this is what drives the disciples to stay with Jesus, right? That at one point, Jesus looks at the crowds leaving 
And he says, are you going to leave me too? And one of the disciples rightfully steps in and goes, where are we going to go, Jesus? You have the words of life. Is that true of your faith? Or are there other things that you allow to distract your obedience that you think are more valuable than obedience to the Son of God? So how is your obedience? Are you an imitator of God? Or do we find ourselves like in the account of John chapter 8? Do we mirror more another father, Satan, the one of lies, the one who deceives and leads us astray? But to encourage our obedience, God does not just give us commands and say, go and do. He models it first perfectly through his son. But I would argue almost every command in scripture is coupled with a reason for doing it. And the reason tends to center upon the character and nature of God. So think about a couple of these with me. First John 419. We love, why? Because God first loved us. Look at Romans 12.1. Therefore, I urge you by what? The mercies of God to offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. So part of our relationship is a call and response to the gospel. And, and ultimately, we frame it here at this church. Because we love Christ, we do what? We live his mission. And regardless if you find yourself single right now, or maybe you're struggling with infertility, the greatest thing that you can reproduce through your life is spiritual reproduction. Reproduce the faith that you've received in Christ in someone who is far from the Lord. That is the design that was given to Adam and Eve and is carried forward in the church. You know what the command to be fruitful and multiply sounds like to the New Testament church? Go and make disciples. We're always to be loving Christ by living his mission. And then last, the gospel unifies those who put their faith in Christ as God's new people, but it also divides. And this is the warning for us. Parents, we did this family dedication. Are you encouraging your children to take radical steps of obedience to follow the Lord? Or have you handcuffed them to an occupation or job or dream that you want for their life of comfort and achievement? At the sake of the gospel. But then the opposite is also true. If you're one of those who has counted the cost. And you've given your life for radical obedience to Christ. And you've lost family as a result of it. Or you've lost friendships. Look at Jesus' words and find encouragement. You've been made part of the family of God. That will extend for all eternity. And it is something that is not dependent upon where you started. It's looking forward to where we will finish in relationship with God the Father and God the Son. So how's God leading you to respond this morning? As the worship team comes forward, I'll ask these questions. And we're going to have pastors up here. We would love to visit with you um, just about what the Lord is doing in your heart. But we would love to pray with you. If if there's maybe nothing specific that you've sense of leading, you just need prayer. You can come forward and do that. But how's God leading you to respond? Do you need to be adopted into the family of God? We would love to share with you how you can put your faith in Christ and begin this walk of obedience. But maybe you're here this morning and you are in the family of God, but your obedience has has fallen short or it's weak. And we want to encourage you, now's the time to repent and believe. This is an ongoing thing for many of us where we go off course and we come back. But then last, 
I think no matter where we see ourselves in these pictures, the Lord is calling us to himself. And we're going to sing a song of response that gives Jesus praise for who he is. And it's going to make statements of, I build my life upon Christ's love. And so as we look back to Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith, would he be honored and glorified through our hearts as we respond to being made part of the family of God? Let me pray and we'll sing together. You can stand with me. Father, thank you for your word. God, we thank you that we can be made part of the family of God, not having to do anything that is above simple belief in the Son of God and is marked by nothing more than just living in response to the gospel that's been made ours through Christ. Lord, would you just move in our hearts this morning as we continue in worship. God, may this be a prayer of our hearts that we would build our life upon your love. It is the firm foundation from which all of our obedience flows. God, would you be glorified. We thank you so much that we can be counted part of the family of God, not based on where we started, but based upon simple belief in the Son. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.